This archived broadcast of Janet Meffer Today is brought to you by Heart for Lebanon. God is using Heart for Lebanon to bring practical assistance and the gospel to the stricken refugee families in Lebanon. For a gift of $116, you can give a child and his family survival essentials for four months and the hope of Jesus Christ, which lasts forever. Call now, 888-247-5499, 888-247-5499, or there's a banner to click at JanetMefford.com. This is Janet Mefford Today. Our confidence is in Christ alone. Are we going to stand with God come what may? If the Word of God says it, I believe it! And that's the way it is. And now, here is Janet Mefford. Thank you so much for joining us again. All around us, there is evidence that technology is likely to have a game-changing effect on the future of American work. And alongside the rise of the machines, like robots that can do tasks and recognize speech, is the rise of concern that as smart machines do more and more, human beings will do less and less. So how can free enterprise and virtue save the American dream? We're going to talk about it today with Dr. Jay Richards, professor in the School of Business and Economics at the Catholic University of America. He is a senior fellow at the Discovery Institute and also executive editor of The Stream. His new book is called The Human Advantage, The Future of American Work in an Age of Smart Machines. And Jay, it's wonderful to have you here. How are you doing? Great. Thanks so much for having me, Janet. It's great to have you here. So I know there is a lot of anxiety out there about machines taking Mm. up our jobs. I see stories about this all the time. Do you think that anxiety is warranted? I think depending on what you're doing, a little bit of worry makes sense. My advice in the book is to prepare rather than panic. I Honestly, Janet, I wrote the book in part because there's so much confusion about the difference between man and machine on the one hand. Uh, and, you know, if you assume either that we're going to make machines that are like us, you could be worried. Or if you're an atheist and think we're nothing but machines, you should probably be worried. Um, and so that, that leads to kind of a worldview reason for people to worry. But there is a massive disruption coming, and it really hasn't happened yet, in which a huge number of the jobs that we now do and might think only humans can do I really do think are going to be done either by smart, weak artificial intelligences or robots or other types of machines. And so um, part of the question is, okay, what do I think the difference between man and machine is? And also, what am I doing? And is what I'm doing or my children doing, are they likely to be automated? And if so, what do I do about it? Oh, yeah. Huge questions. Well, when you look at the landscape out there, where do you see the biggest changes about to take place? Where will robots or smart machines or artificial intelligence replace human beings? Which fields are most likely to see those changes? Factories or places like mm-hmm. the healthcare field? Where do you see those things taking place? It's sort of all across the board. A lot of people think it's just going to be blue collar rather than white collar, but that's really not true. I mean, if you're doing insurance adjusting or certain types of accounting or you're even in financial planning or forecasting, a lot of those are already being handed over to to smart machines that are running smart algorithms. If you're doing really repetitive factory work, then you're basically doing the type of work that's sort of fit for a machine. In other words, it's going to be easy to create a machine that can do that. In fact, if you look at the manufacturing sector, since 1980, about two-thirds of the jobs that have been lost have been not the result of moving jobs to China or Mexico. They've been the result of automation. Now, that's the bad side. The good side is that our manufacturing sector is more productive than ever. And so really what you want to look at is, is this type of job highly repetitive or can it be reduced to some kind of system or an algorithm. Something that might surprise people is long-haul trucking, which is a very important job, especially for men. There are states in which 
uh, the main job that men have is long haul trucking. That technology for long haul, you know, sort of semi uh, tractor uh, trailer trucks across the country on, on interstates, we already have the technology to do that. And so I honestly think a heck of a lot of those jobs are going to go the way of the dodo bird. So if that's what you're doing and that's your long term plan, then I'd advise you uh, try to diversify while there's, there's still time. Well, now what happens as we see the rise of machine learning and these sorts of technologies? Doesn't that necessitate more jobs in some respects that there will be additional jobs that do not exist right now because of machines coming on board? Absolutely. And I mean, this is difficult to say. And so in the book, I talk a lot about historical precedent. If you think about, say, you know, 1776, the 95% of the population were working and living on farms. Today, it's approaching 1%. So you can imagine, wow, 94% unemployment in the last 200 years. But of course, that's not what happened because Food for everyone is a lot less expensive. Most of us don't have to worry about doing farm labor. So that freed us up to do other things. And then lower prices on food and other things creates markets that weren't there before. The difficulty, Janet, is that it's easy to see jobs that are lost. It's hard to say exactly what jobs will replace them because those are always in the future. And so in some ways, the best we can do is look at historical precedent and say, look, there have been major job disruptions in the past. It's always led to actually better and more jobs. And I think we can expect that in the future. Right. So now when you're talking about us being an agrarian society, which we largely were many years ago and then went into the industrial Mm -hmm. age, we've had different forms of the American dream as you talk about the first American dream, the second American dream. So talk a little bit, if you would, about the evolution of the American dream and where the new American dream might be headed. Yeah, I mean, the very first, the word American dream, it only comes from the 1930s, but it really connects to that famous phrase from the Declaration of Independence that, you know, we hold these truths to be self-evident. All men are created equal and endowed by their creator uh, to pursue life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. That idea that that pursuit is open to everyone, not just the well-heeled and well-connected, but ordinary people willing to work, that's been a part of the American experiment from the beginning. It really started out as just the desire to own a family farm. And then by about 1950, it had moved to where most people wanted to own a home. They didn't want to own a farm. If you ask millennials today, yeah, they maybe want to buy a house or a condominium, but almost none of them think about owning a home as their dream. The real mm-hmm. dream is always something kind of more diffuse. And the best I can do to sort of describe what the third American dream is, is it's a desire to be able to create value, to create value for yourself and others. That's, that's more concrete, but also sort of more expansive. Well, it's so interesting. You're right. And you hear a lot of people talking that way. I want to do something that matters. I want to do something that is really worth something. And I I think of previous generations that would have just been unconscionable for them to think that way. So what does that portend then for the future? If you have a generation of people who are saying, I really want to create something of value, would that, for example, create a new generation of entrepreneurs, for example? Yeah, I think so. I mean, we we think of entrepreneurs as the quintessential quintessential creators of value because they take risk often with their own or with venture capitalist money. But really, any job that you do, any job for which there's a market, I mean, I tell the story of this guy, Les Swanson, who has a septic tank company. He's become actually fabulously wealthy in Wisconsin. No one would think, including Swanson, that, hey, you know, cleaning septic tanks, that's sort of my dream. (laughs) And yet, by figuring out a way to do it, he eventually realized he enjoyed it, and it was because he was creating a value for other people. And so honestly, I think, yes, 
There are many opportunities for entrepreneurs, but don't imagine that unless you're willing to take huge risks with all the money that you've saved up, that somehow you can't create value. What you want to do is, first of all, find something that people need or might want if it's created. Find then the thing that you might be good at or think you might be willing to get good at. And then find the overlap between those things and get good at it and try to do better than your competitors. When you do that, you will find that you're creating value. And we know actually from happiness studies that people that do that, that have so-called earned success, they tend to be happier than everybody else. Right. Now, now, one of the things when you talk about, for example, the, the events of 2008 and the housing crisis and all mm-hmm. the rest, you now have a populace that is deeply in debt in many cases. Yes. You have college education costs, which are out of control. You have many students who are not able to repay those loans as fast as they expected to. What about the burden of debt and the possibility of beginning you know, a new generation of expansion into the new American dream? If you are saddled with that much debt, is that going to be a huge problem in the future. It is. I mean, it's certainly going to be a problem if you're saddled with debt that you can't pay off. And so whenever I'm talking to college students, I mean, I'm a college professor, and so, um, but I don't want to advise students based on my narrow self-interest. I mean, I really think it's a serious mistake at this day and age uh, to spend, say, $60,000 a year on a college education to get a degree that's not only not soul expanding, that it doesn't, it doesn't do what liberal arts is supposed to do, and it also doesn't actually give you a marketable skill. If you're doing a gender studies degree or something right. at a formerly Christian college, that's probably a terrible idea unless you're you know, planning to be a corporate activist or something like that. Um, and especially, and I talk a lot, about, a lot about this in the book, there's actually really cheap, inexpensive, useful ways to get knowledge online, either free or at drastically reduced cost. So I honestly think there's a reckoning coming for colleges that cost way too much and that don't actually deliver value for students that'll allow them to create value later on. No, you're so right about that. We're going to get into more on The Human Advantage, the name of the book from Jay Richards. We'll come back on Janet Meffer today after this. This is Janet Mefford for Bible League International. Authorities in China are making life difficult for Christians. It's against the law to share Christ with children under age 18. We cannot preach to children under 18. That is their practice and law. But when the parents bring kids to the church, when you can teach them English and then you can send the gift of gospel to them, it is a great joy. Believers are teaching English to young people using a Bible League program that uses God's Word as the source of the reading assignments. And many are coming to embrace Jesus as Lord and Savior and sharing Him with their families. Please join Bible League in sending God's Word to Bibleist believers in China and around the world for only $5 per Bible. $50 sends 10, $500 sends 100. Call now, 800 Yes Word, 800 Y E S W O R D, or there's a Bible League banner to click at janetmefford.com. Thank you for your support. When this young mom came into a preborn center, she had decided that abortion was the best choice as she was coming out of an abusive relationship. But after meeting her baby on ultrasound and feeling the love and support she needed from the preborn staff, she knew life was the best choice. The ultrasound, I was in shock. I knew I was pregnant, but seeing it on the screen was 
a completely different ball game. Honestly, without you, I don't think I would have my little boy. He's so healthy and he's so sweet and I am so grateful every day. Preborn is the largest provider of free ultrasounds in the country. Will you join Preborn in helping love and support young moms in crisis? For $140, you can sponsor five ultrasounds and help rescue five babies' lives. To donate, call 855-402-BABY. That's 855-402-2229. Or there's a Preborn banner to click at JanetMefford.com. 855-402-BABY. You're listening to Janet Mefford today. And now, here's Janet. We are back on Janet Mefford today. Great to have with us Dr. Jay Richards, professor in the School of Business and Economics at the Catholic University of America. He is executive editor of The Stream and also author of The Human Advantage, The Future of American Work in an Age of Smart Machines. We covered this territory, Jay, in the previous segment about the rise of robots and artificial intelligence and the nervousness this creates among a lot of Americans that their jobs may be going away because we have all these robots who can do things that formerly humans used to do. You, though, get into some something very important in your book, which is rebuilding a culture of virtue. Now, in a book about work, many people may say, what does virtue have to do with it? But maybe you can unpack that a little bit and explain (laughs) why do we need a culture of virtue at a time like this? I mean, honestly, it's actually the secret ingredient, because my argument is that on the one hand, machines are going to do a bunch of stuff we were previously doing and are doing right now. Uh, On the other hand, we are not machines. We are creatures made in the image of God. We are free beings who can exercise virtue and vice. We can train ourselves to do new things. That's what a virtue is. It's essentially consciously choosing to act in a certain way over and over and over again until it becomes a habit, and then you do it enough, the habit gets down into your being so that you become more than you were before. And so that's something that's unique to us, this ability, especially the the virtues of altruism, where we seek to meet the needs of others, uh, where we learn to collaborate, where we exercise what I call creative freedom, which is quite literally the thing that humans do uniquely. We can create things that were not there before, but to do that, we have to train ourselves and, and focus on creating value for others. And so my argument is that actually, if you want to focus on the human comparative advantage over machines, you have to focus not just on virtue in general, but the virtues that will allow us to succeed in an information age. And it turns out that creative freedom is the sort of key virtue because creative freedom is all about creating new forms, creating literally new information. And so in many ways, if you think about it, information comes only uniquely from intelligent agents. We can create machines that are informational, they can transfer it and store it, but we're the creators of new types of information, of new ideas. And so an information economy, as long as you're focusing on that part of what it means to be human, I argue, is actually really well fitted for human beings. It's just that we're going to create machines that do a lot of the stuff, a lot of the drudgery, a lot of the kind of, you might think of it as the sort of animal work that can be either given to an ox or given to a machine. That will get, that's going to lead us to be able to focus on those things that are uniquely human. And so that is virtue in general, and it's these uh, virtues like creative freedom in particular, then I, I think that it sort of frees us up to exercise that. But it also means we're going to have to focus on it, not just as individuals, but that means We need to build up the institutions that actually create virtue. Nobody does this on his own. No one's a Robinson Crusoe that we just by ourselves, we kind of create these 
you know, these sanctified people. We need families, we need churches, we need voluntary associations. And that, I think, and it's, that's the scariest part of this, that at the very moment when technology is disrupting sort of the way of life that we got used to in the 20th century, it's also undermining and chipping away at the virtue-forming institutions that we're going to need the most in order to succeed in the 21st century. Right. Now, here's an important point, because we are at a point in our history where we're beginning to see the rise of progressivism and interest in socialism. Mm -hmm. I was reading recently Mm -hmm. in the discussion about robots getting more and more of our jobs. What do you do about income for people? And some of the ideas included a universal basic income or a federal job guarantee, Mm -hmm. subsidies for the employment of human workers. But none of those necessarily sound like good solutions. If you're losing your virtue in your in your culture at the same time that the robots are on the rise, there's worry, I think, to be had there. There's a little bit of concern that I have. Are we morally prepared to deal with robots? That's, I think that honestly is an open question. I mean, I, I hate to bring up the topic of sex robots, but I, I talked about it in the book because yep. that's sort of the if you want to see the dark side, that's the dark side. It wouldn't be that big a deal if no one was tempted to that. But the reality is that there is a market for that. I mean, that, that's simply the, the reality of it. And then you mentioned this idea of a universal basic income, which is essentially we would the government would just pay everybody a fixed amount essentially not to work. Now, I understand the desire to help people that are in a transition, but I think we also need to learn the lessons of the last 50 years with the welfare state. Yeah. All, again, well-meaning attempts to, to alleviate poverty, but so many of these programs, they actually undermine the virtues that people need in order to succeed. And so now imagine we're going to expand that, not just from the sort of underclass that's dependent upon welfare, but to the whole population, we're going to now people effectively, we're going to pay people not to work. I just think that's exactly the opposite of what we want to do. Whatever policy prescriptions we come up with to alleviate this problem, we don't want to do things that actually undermine virtue. Well, no, and it even goes against our basic economic system. If I, I was thinking back, I went to the Soviet Union when I was in high school, and we were in Leningrad, mm-hmm. and there was a hotel being built, and there were you know construction things all around it, and some different construction workers. And I said, oh, and I commented to one of the Russian people I was with, and I said, oh, look, they're building a new hotel that's so great. And she looked at me, and she kind of rolled her eyes. And so what's the matter? And she said, they've been building that for 20 years. And I said, well, why does it? And I said, why does it take 20 years to build a hotel? And she said, they get paid whether it gets built or not. Why build it? I mean, that's what we would be walking into if we started having a universal basic income. Why work? Yeah, why work? And also, I mean, a key virtue that you need is what I, altruism. It's acting for the benefit of the other. Now, if you have to meet a customer's needs, if you have to say, I'm not going to get paid unless I create something that somebody else values. Um, you're going to go out of your way to create things that somebody else values. If you don't have to do that, that's difficult to yeah. figure out what that is. I'll just kind of, I'll just do what I want to do. I'll just play World of Warcraft for 15 hours on my computer. I'm going to get a check either way. And so I just really think, I mean, there have been about 20 books, believe it or not, in the last few years talking about automation and robots and advocating this universal basic income. And so it's part of the reason I spent a bunch of time in the last, one of the last chapters of the book, just, just laying out why this is a terrible idea because it looks like it's it's getting popular both on the left and on the right politically, unfortunately. Do you think that that's coming from a place of people just not wanting to do anything? That we're so materialistic at this point, we have so many conveniences and so much can be done for us that we're just getting lazy and that's some of the loss of virtue that we're experiencing? 
Yeah, I mean, that's certainly part of it. I mean, the, the irony, I use the example of the Irish who immigrated to the United States, mostly in the 19th century. You might think, wow, they came over here. That was a huge risk. But in many ways, for the Irish that immigrated, their live option was starvation. I mean, they're working basically as oppressed tenant farmers. Uh, their famines and their choices, well, either get on a boat, leave our family forever and to go to an unknown land or die of starvation. So in that case, you know, that kind of encourages you to act courageously and boldly yeah. because your alternative right. is so bad. If you're not going to starve to death, if you can sleep on your parents' basement and get a check from the government, um, you're not going to do that because you have to. If you're going to be act courageously, it's going to be because you cultivated that virtue. And so in some ways, the fact that so many of us have it so easy makes it easy for us to be to develop vice, unfortunately, rather than virtue. Yeah, that's right. And and back to the, the question of whether or not a universal basic income would ever be put into place, that gives government more control. And just from an economic perspective, mm. now you've got a, a new kind of society. That's not just a new kind of American dream. You've got a new America, if it goes that direction. Yeah. Absolutely. I mean, it's essentially a form of socialism. And what's funny about this, Janet, is there was a letter written by some activists and scientists way back in 1964 to President Johnson talking about what at the time they called the cybernation revolution. But they're really talking about robots. And they said, we need a universal basic income to solve this. This is in 1964. Johnson didn't do that, but he did start his great society initiative to, you know, declare war on poverty shortly thereafter. And so this idea has been around and encouraging bad policies for a long time. Um, unfortunately, there's always a kind of an ex- always some excuse that somebody is going to use in order to grow the government and reduce our economic freedom. But this is precisely the wrong time to try to do that again. It is. So in your section, as you mentioned, toward the end of the book, you talk about happiness and how to pursue it. Mm. How should we even look at the question of happiness and what actually should be pursued in order to achieve it? Well, you, you, we've got to be careful what we mean by happiness. A lot of Christians hear that and they say, well, we shouldn't be pursuing happiness. We should be pursuing holiness. Well, that's certainly true, but that's not the classical definition of happiness. Happiness isn't sort of short, short-term sensual pleasure that you might get, you know, from a rush, from some experience. Um, it's, it's both a kind of long-term state of flourishing in which you're both, you're both healthy, uh, you have your needs met, you can protect your children, but also it's based on virtue. I mean, this goes all the way back to Aristotle, that a person cannot be truly happy if they're not also a virtuous person. That's why, you know, any mother is never going to tell her child, like if you have a son that likes to torture small animals, she's not going to say, well, whatever makes you happy. She's going to know, no, that's not happiness. There's something wrong with my child. We know that true happiness can only be had if it's consistent with the nature of what we are as humans created in the image of God. So the question is always, well, but if I pursue a a, a life of virtue, is that going to make me miserable? Is it going to torture me? Well, maybe. I mean, maybe God will call you to sacrifice your life for others, but that's kind of a rare instance. I really think that the more likely scenario for most people is that if you pursue a life of virtue, if you pursue a life in which you look for ways to create value for others, you're most likely both to succeed economically and also to kind of experience in this life the kind of happiness we could experience this side of glory, which is a fulfillment of what Arthur Brooks calls earned success, yes. in which you benefit financially, but you benefit by serving other people, not by exploiting them or stealing from them. So that's the kind of think of it as a virtuous circle in which we pursue virtue for its own sake. And because God calls us to that, he calls us to life of life of holiness. 
We look for ways to serve others. That in our free enterprise system allows us to succeed economically. And then that economic success allows us to do things that we could not do otherwise. And so my argument would be sort of for the package deal. Look for a full life of flourishing that doesn't isn't just spiritual, but isn't only spiritual, but is also economic. And these things, if you do it right, I actually think go together. Well, I think that's well said, and it's very well said throughout the book. It's really a great book. Again, it's called The Human Advantage, The Future of American Work in an Age of Smart Machines by Dr. Jay Richardson. Check out the stream online. Jay, always great to talk to you. Thank you for being here. Thanks for having me. All right. You take care. We'll be back on Janet Meffer today. This archived broadcast of Janet Meffer Today is brought to you by Heart for Lebanon. God is using Heart for Lebanon to bring practical assistance and the gospel to the stricken refugee families in Lebanon. For a gift of $116, you can give a child and his family survival essentials for four months and the hope of Jesus Christ, which lasts forever. Call now, 888-247-5499, 888-247-5499, or there's a banner to click at JanetMefford.com. This is Janet Mefford Today, and now, here's your host, Janet Mefford. We are back on Janet Mefford Today. Why are we all here? What is our purpose? How do we find happiness and meaning in life? Well, the world tells us to make life all about ourselves, but what is the biblical answer to that question? You might recall that in his confession, St. Augustine famously stated, you have made us for yourself, O God, and our hearts are restless until they find their rest in you. Or the Westminster Shorter Catechism, which asks, what is the chief end of man? And the answer is man's chief end is to glorify God and to enjoy him forever. Then we think of Psalm 37, 4, which says, Delight yourself in the Lord, and he will give you the desires of your heart. So we know all of this to be true. And as my next guest says, we will find satisfaction in life when our search leads us to the glory of God. So that is what we're going to talk about today with Jeff Johnson. He is the teaching pastor of Grace Bible Church and academic dean of Grace Bible Institute of Pastoral Studies in Conway, Arkansas. His book is called The Pursuit of Glory. And Jeff, it's a privilege to have you. Thank you so much for joining us. Thank you so much for having me. It's privilege for me as well. Oh, thank you. Well, you say, and I think you're right in saying this, we are all looking for glory. Now, when you say that statement to somebody, what do you mean that we're all looking for glory? Yeah, the word glory, at least as I explain it in the book, encompasses all the innate desires that God has put into us to pursue something greater than ourselves, something glorious. And that is something God put in us. And the glory that we're pursuing is actually God himself, even though we're often misled by our flesh and by the world to think glory is found in some other place. Right. You know, fame or fortune or something of that nature. Right. So now, how do you see people sometimes misusing that way that God created us to pursue Him and then go in other directions apart from the Lord? Obviously, if you're not pursuing God, you're not ultimately finding the purpose for which He made you. But where do you see people getting off track with that? Well, the, the Bible says that we're born spiritually dead, and so we're already born cut off from a relationship with God. And since we don't have the glory of God, our relationship with God, 
and we still have that pursuit of glory, that's not erased in us. Right. We're going to seek it somewhere, and if we're cut off from the spiritual realm and not looking for it in God, um, the natural other place to look is somewhere in this world, or maybe within ourselves. And so we're all pursuing glory. It's just a matter of where we're going to look for it. Right. So if you are properly pursuing glory and the glory of God, what should that be? How do you go in the right direction, even as you're living your life in this world? Well, you'd want to find something that's truly inherently glorious. And if we look at something in this world, if it's being famous or winning the Super Bowl or doing something amazing that people are very excited about, all that stuff is fleeting and it's temporal and it doesn't last very long. The glory of this world, as the Bible says, is passing away. It's temporal. But there's another glory that doesn't fade away, that's eternal. And the Bible describes glory as kind of a weight, a weightiness, something that that has true substance. And when you look at this world, the Bible describes the world as vain. All that's under the sun, Solomon said, is vanity because of the brevity of it. It doesn't last very long. And that's why when you chase the glory of this world, you're going from one thing to the next, because whatever, if it's the new car, it fades away. If it's uh, uh, posting a selfie and getting a hundred likes, that's good for the moment, but the next day it's no longer sufficient. And it's, it's chasing one temporal thing after the next and really never finding anything that's eternal or substance. And, and for us to find true glory that doesn't fade away, we must find something that's eternal. And the only thing that's truly eternal and truly has glory in its own nature is God himself. It's true. That's so true. Well said. You mentioned in the book what I thought to be a really scary scenario where you were close to ending your own life. And you say you wanted to die because of your unquenchable desire to be happy. Now, our founders talked about life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness, but would you share a little bit about that? What do you mean about the unquenchable desire to be happy and how sometimes that can take us off course? Yeah, I've counseled plenty of people that's been suicidal and I've experienced that myself. And it seems to me that suicide is not desirable for anyone. It just seems to be the best of the options that are available to us. And and so when you when life is miserable and you lose all hope and You can't find happiness, and you thought that which was going to make you happy is now gone. Uh, We become depressed, and um, and and in the process of becoming depressed, we're still seeking happiness. We're still seeking for liberty. We're still seeking for meaning and purpose. We're still seeking for these things, but because we're not able to find them in what we were looking for, in the things that we were looking for we come to the conclusion that it can't be found. Wow. But of course, what helped me is finding that satisfaction and that glory and that purpose and meaning in Christ himself, which is the true hope for all of us. Yeah. Oh, I'm so glad. I And, you know, this is an issue that really does hit close to home for a lot of us who may have had a family member or friend commit suicide. And unfortunately, those numbers are higher than we want them to be. But where do you 
look upon those who say, I'm not happy, I'm in pain, I'm really sad, I am hopeless, these sorts of things, looking to get out of this life as a way of making themselves happy, how would you go back to somebody who might be in that position and talk them out of it and say, listen, in the Lord, you can have peace and joy, and you're thinking about this all wrong? Yeah, that's right. When we're counseling anyone who's depressed, and especially if they're suicidal, what they need more than anything else, and what they're looking for is hope. Hope is like a light that yes. shines in the darkness. Yep. And when all is dark, you just need light. You need hope. You need something to say, okay, I can live because of this. And so when you're counseling someone, the main thing you want to do is provide hope. And we have hope, but that's the good news of the gospel. We're not left with just some empty promise, oh, it'll get better, or you can get through this, or just hold on, you're going to find a wife, or hold on, or you can get another job, or you're going to get over this sickness. We can't promise these things, uh, but we can promise something even better. We can promise that if you look to Christ, you can have eternal life. And with that hope, you can live with disappointments. You can live with frustrations and sickness and heartaches. You can live with that, not that those things loses all their sting and all their difficulty, but there's something underneath it all that gives you joy and peace. It's a peace or joy that surpasses all understanding, and that's the joy of knowing the Lord and that the Lord is with you and will sustain you, and that there's something greater than this life. There's something greater than this temporal moment of frustration and difficulty. Yes. Well, and as you were mentioning social media a few minutes ago, I was thinking about how in many ways our generation is a little bit deranged because we have so much materially. We have so much, even the poorest of us have so much compared to so many other people in the world. And we buy into these very shallow notions of having to be happy all the time. I mean, that's not even realistic. Even for the non-Christian, you're not happy happy all the time. You might be happy on a particular day because you had a great day. Tomorrow you may have a lousy day. But what about just the whole subject of happiness from a Christian perspective that it's not realistic and it's not even God's will that you are happy all the time? That's just not the way it is. Well, it's not the way it is. And, and I think we've seen as the culture kind of deteriorates before our eyes, we see that in the past people define happiness and purpose and meaning as something more substantial. Even if it's not Christ, they would find meaning in the fact that that they descended from a particular um, people, like, hey, I'm, I'm a Johnson, and my, my grandfather's a Johnson, and he was a Johnson, and I find meaning in something a little more substantial in my family identity, my family network. But now we've moved from that to just trying to find happiness in the slightest little things, such as a, a selfie or your new, a new pair of shoes or a new pair of jeans. And that brings a measure of happiness, a measure of pleasure, a measure of glory, because someone will say, hey, I like those jeans. I, I like those that shirt you've got. And that gives us immediate moment of gratification. And then we begin, if you would, constantly seeking over and over self-affirmation. Yeah, that's so true. I need affirmation. Yep, that's exactly right. Hang on just a moment. Jeff Johnson with us. The Pursuit of Glory is his book. We'll be right back talking about it on Janet Meffer today.
The U.N. has called what's happening in Lebanon the worst humanitarian crisis since World War II. COVID-19, political upheaval, a crumbling economy, and two million refugees, children and their families, living in poverty and despair. But in the middle of it all, God is at work. More Muslim-cultured people than ever before are putting their faith and trust in Jesus. And through your generous support, Heart for Lebanon is being used to bring these hurting people from despair to hope. A single gift of $116 helps bring a child and their family survival essentials and the hope of the gospel, which lasts forever. $348 cares for this family for an entire year. We have a goal to take over 50 families off a waiting list that desperately need our help. So we're hoping you'll be as generous as you can when you call 888-247-5499, 888-247-5499, or there's a Heart for Lebanon banner at JanetMefford.com. Thank you. Ask yourself, what do you pay for health care? Are you single? Do you pay more than $199 a month? Are you a couple? Do you pay more than $299 a month? Do you have a family? Do you pay more than $399 a month? Yes, you can serve the entire family with health care for only $399 a month with Liberty HealthShare. Liberty HealthShare is a nonprofit ministry, not insurance. So your money goes toward helping other members with their eligible medical expenses. And in your time of need, other members are there for you too. You can feel good knowing you're part of a community of like-minded individuals. Sign up at any time of the year. Pick your own doctor and hospital. Find out more at libertyhealthshare.org slash JMT. That's libertyhealthshare.org slash JMT. Or call now, 855-565-2561. That's 855-565-2561 or libertyhealthshare.org slash JMT. You're listening to Janet Mefford today. And now, here's Janet. We are back on Janet Mefford today. Thank you for joining us, and it's great to have with us Jeff Johnson, teaching pastor of Grace Bible Church and author of the book, The Pursuit of Glory, and really trying to get a handle on a biblical outlook on life and not falling for what the world tells us we have to be or have to pursue. We are to pursue the Lord, and that is what ultimately brings us the peace and joy that we need as Christians, and we're not those without hope anymore. Jeff, you were talking about this before we went to the break and how oftentimes happiness in our modern world is, you know, I got a new pair of shoes or look at how many likes I got on Instagram on that picture of myself and look how thin I am, by the way. These shallow pursuits, I think, really create a scenario in which you have fleeting moments of happiness, but then they have to be refilled all the time, don't they? So this is a, a, a problem over and over and over again if you fall into that trap. Yeah, because all these things are superficial, and deep down we know they're superficial. They can't last. They don't penetrate our soul and tell us that, hey, I really do have purpose. I am meaningful as a person. And and that's that's why we're constantly ever seeking these things. But if we could find Christ and find our purpose and our joy and our happiness in knowing Him, then we can have something that even if the whole world doesn't like us, even if we're not thin, even if we have no... Um, likes on our Instagram pictures, it's okay because we have something greater. We have the Lord, the creator of the universe, saying He will never leave us, forsake us, and that He has made us for a relationship with Him. And that is something truly substantial and and long-lasting that can fill us with purpose and a deeper sense of happiness that is not contingent upon the superficial um, 
affirmations that we might get from the world. Yeah, absolutely true. I say this again and again, but I'll, I'll say it again here. I, I often joke with people, but I'm being serious at the same time. How many followers did Jesus have when he was hanging on the cross? Because even those <laughs> who loved him forsook him at that moment. And so right. it doesn't right. it doesn't matter. But a lot of people think that it does. But you brought up an important subject, which is purpose in life. And you see a lot of people standing on stage and, you know, going on the internet and making big bucks, telling people how you can have this or that and fulfill your purpose and all the rest, Oprahfication of the, of the world. But how do you counsel people or talk even to Christians who haven't thought it through very well about finding your purpose in the Lord? How do you do that? What, what should you look for? And what are you really about when you are finding your purpose in the Lord? Yeah, I, I want to talk about the importance of work. Um, many people try to get a, uh, away from work and avoid work, but God has made us to work. Mm-hmm. And for that reason, in a good way, we identify who we are by what we do. I'm a doctor, or I'm a teacher, or I'm a pastor. Whatever it is that we do, we find some form of identity and purpose in our activities and in our work. And that's fine, and God's made us to find identity and purpose in what we do, and not in what we've seen so many uh, young people today of just being more lazy and and dependent and having people give them things and expecting everything to be handed to them. We're made to work and to work hard, but ultimately the work that we do in this world is going to perish as well. You know, I may be a doctor and extend someone's life, but that extension of life is only for a few years, and eventually they're going to die and everyone's going to die and I'm going to die. So our work has to be eternal work. We have to work for something that has eternal value and eternal purpose. And and the Bible depicts the work that we do for the Lord, even if we give a cold cup of water to someone, which seems very insignificant. If we do that in the name of the Lord and for the Lord, that work has eternal weight to it, eternal purpose to it. And that gives the housewife purpose, that gives the janitor purpose, that gives the king's purpose, that gives president's purpose, that gives you a purpose, it gives me purpose, because it doesn't matter exactly what our calling is in this life. If we're living for the Lord, we're working for something that's eternal and weighty. Absolutely. Well, and I also think about where the Bible speaks of our spiritual gifts and how God gives spiritual gifts to Christians to build up the saints for the work of ministry. And that used to be talked about, I think, more than it's talked about today, that the Lord does give out spiritual gifts to Christians so that they can use them for his glory. What is your perspective on that, the the use of your spiritual gifts? Yeah, I believe God made the church to be interdependent upon one another, that the saints have different gifts, if you say, and these gifts are not to be um, used for self, but to be used for the, the body of Christ and to serve the church and serve the saints and even serve people outside the church. We're, we're called to serve as God has come, not to, to, to be served, but to serve us. And likewise, we've been called to serve and use the gifts that God has given us uh, to serve his body. And so I may not necessarily be gifted in all the spiritual gifts, but God's given me a unique gift, and that is something that's specially given to me to use 
for the greater body and for the greater good. That's great. That's really great. One of the things you also talk about in the book is the pursuit of freedom. And I think you said something very, very important on that. You said freedom is not found in lawlessness and freedom is not found in the law. And those are the two ditches I think sometimes people will end up in if they go too far either way. Can you speak to that, that the pursuit of freedom can only be found in Christ, not in lawlessness or in the law? Why emphasize those two ditches, as it were? Yeah, because we're tending to go in uh, one direction or the other. And we think if I'm going to be free, I need to be able to do what I want to do when I want to do. So if I want to sin or indulge myself and you know, reckless activities. We think, well, that's what it means to be free. But the Bible teaches us that sin brings bondage and it brings death. So there's no freedom in lawlessness or in sin. But then we think about, well, maybe I just need to be a good person and just obey the law. Now, the law can point us to freedom, but it can't give us the ability to be free. And therefore, sin is bondage. But for us to obey the law, we need Christ. We need to have a relationship with the Lord, because only when we walk with the Lord are we empowered with the love of the Lord. And if we're going to obey, we have to have love. And love comes only in a relationship with God and His love flowing through us. And by that love flowing in us and through us, are we able truly to stay away from bondage of sin. Yeah, a really important thing. Another thing you mentioned, which I think is so important to emphasize, especially in tandem with what I just mentioned, was the pursuit of holiness. This is, I think, when we've seen these antinomian impulses come up in the last several years, especially where people say, well, I'm saved by grace, so I can just do whatever I want. In fact, there are so many passages that pertain to our pursuit of holiness. Can you speak to that and how necessary that is in the Christian life? Oh, yeah. I mean, holiness is, is what Christians made for. He's, he's made us to, to be like Christ, to walk in holiness and purity. Be holy as the, I am holy, says the Lord. And as I've already indicated, it, it is unholiness and it's sin that is self-destructive. The, the wages of sin is death, and the, uh, the, the way of the transgressor, Proverbs says, is hard. And so much of the counseling that I do has involved with people's mistakes or their sins or their bad beliefs. And because of their sins, they're reaping the consequences of their actions, the negative consequences of their actions. And in order to get Christians back on path is to get them back to seeking the holiness that's found in Christ. Yeah, that's right. That's right. Oh, I'm so glad you emphasized that. Ultimately, as you say, finding life and the, you know, the pursuit of life means that we need reconciliation with God. And this is where it all begins. I'm sure there are people listening who think right now I go to church every Sunday. I am right with God. I believe in God, but aren't truly born again by the Spirit of God, aren't truly disciples of Jesus Christ. What would you say to that listener who says, I want to pursue life? I'm not really sure that I'm there, though. Right, right. Well, Pursuing life is pursuing Christ because the Lord Jesus says, I am life. He is not just the resurrection, but he is life. And so if we're going to have life, and by the way, the, chapter one begins with the pursuit of glory, and the last chapter, which we're talking about now, is the pursuit of life, yes. is kind of speaking of the same thing, is that life is the life that God is going to give us and has promised to us is not just uh, mere existence, but he's given us abundant life. An abundant life includes all these things, happiness, purpose, freedom, companionship, truth, peace, holiness that I list. All these things are, are 
are, is what is entailed in the life that God gives us. And so if we want to truly live the life, the life that God has called us to, it must be found in a relationship with Jesus Christ. It must be found in Him. And by pursuing Christ, we pursue life. Very good. Excellent. Well, the name of the book is The Pursuit of Glory. Pastor Jeff Johnson has been with us, and it was just so good of you to come. Jeff, it was wonderful to talk to you. Great book, and thank you so much for being with us here. Oh, thank you for having me on. It's been a joy. Oh, for me too. Thank you again. God bless you. Thank you for joining us here on Janet Mefford today. It's always great to have you along. We appreciate your listening, and we'll see you next time. This hour of Janet Meffer today is brought to you in part by Heart for Lebanon. Call 888-247-5499 to give desperate people help and the hope of the gospel. 888-247-5499.